you, uh, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me, it's going to be reading today from uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse, verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch on unshrunken cloth, on an old garment, and the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do men put new wine in old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. And they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Uh, let me give you a little background about this particular sermon. We found out about two years ago that my wife has cancer. And shortly after that, she had chemo treatment, and uh, that was pretty successful. However, we did find out from there that, that she had stage four cancer. And so at the time I was working as a deputy warden, and I retired so that we could travel. And we went to Canada a couple times I went. And we also went to visit her sister, and while we were there, her sister's husband is a pastor of a church. And I was saying to him one day, you know, I think if Jesus came back today in our country, that he would be just as harsh with us as he was to the Pharisees and the scribes and Sadducees. My brother-in-law said, uh, what in the world are you talking about? I think that we're following the New Testament commands very well, and our church is practicing as we should. I said... I can't help but look around at some of the great big churches in America. Huge constructions, millions of dollars, and used only a few hours every week. And we say that when we give an offering that that's the Lord's money. And if he were deciding how it was going to be used, I can't see how he would look at other countries where there are people starving to death and have never heard the gospel, and he would spend all that money on a big building. Well, he disagreed with me. And then I went finally to say... uh, Brother, have, have you read the Sermon on the Mount recently? And our, I think our conversation ended there, but uh, would you bow with me as you pray? Father, thank you for this day and for your goodness. We thank you for your son Jesus and for the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And God, we pray that throughout the service that you might be there. In the reading of your word and the hymns that are sung, and the words that are spoken. God, you are our all in all. Thank you for who you are, for what you do in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. When I was a teenager, my mother was sort of a workaholic. She went to work, and then she'd come home at the end of the day, and she would cook and clean. And back then, this is during the, you know, the late 50s and the 60s, and Women believed, or at least everybody believed, that you were supposed to put, even iron your, uh, your blue jeans. You put starch in them and iron them. And I guess all that got to be too much. Sometimes she'd stay up until you know, 11 or 12 o'clock at night ironing. And so she decided to hire this lady to do the ironing. And it was my job. I, I got a driver's license. And uh, she told me that I could go and take the, the, uh, the clothes to be ironed. And then I would bring them back again. One day I was over at Mrs. Brown's house, and as I got there, there were these gallon jugs, the old milk jugs, 
and they're filled with a colorful liquid and they had tubes at the top and they were going into this basin of water and there were bubbles coming out. I said, Miss Brown, what is that? And she said, well, that's wine. We put the juice inside with the yeast and then it starts bubbling as it ferments and it goes out into the little basin and you see the bubbles. When it stops bubbling, then the wine is ready. Now, I don't know about all that. I was raised a Baptist, so we didn't know all that much about you know the wine and everything. But uh, I can assure you there were Baptists in the community that knew a lot about it. But nevertheless, uh, you know, that's exactly what Jesus was talking about. And the background for this is everybody, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders hated him. Uh, he was doing all kinds of things uh, that went against their teaching. They had de- developed this elaborate set of rules. The rules were given to try to follow the law of God. And so they described what work was exactly on the Sabbath. And one of those things was you could, you could only walk a certain distance on the Sabbath or it would be work. And uh, if you spit on the ground, if you spit on a rock, it was okay. Because nothing could come from that. But if you spit on the dirt, uh, that wasn't okay. That was work because you could make mortar out of that. And so they had all these rules. And Jesus seemed to be breaking every one of the rules that they had developed. And uh, they accused him of uh, hanging around with sinners. They accused him of being the man that was uh, breaking the laws because he had his disciples to go out and pick grain on the Sabbath and... Uh, He healed people on the Sabbath. Obviously, in their minds, he was doing everything exactly wrong. Besides all that, he couldn't possibly be the Messiah because the Messiah was going to lead them against the earthly oppressions. Jesus came as a suffering servant. Make no mistake about it. Jesus was a radical religious leader. Those that follow him are following a radical kinds of teaching. And you can be a camp follower of Jesus without being radical. But you cannot be a disciple without being radical. And I want to look today at just some of the radical elements of Christianity as practiced and taught by Jesus. First of all, there is a radical commitment. Matthew 16.24 says, If anyone would follow after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Now we turn that on its head, don't we? We say, <laughs> indulge yourself. You know, you only go around once in this life, so grab it and use everything that you possibly can. Enjoy yourself. Have fun. And Jesus was talking about a denial kind of commitment. He lived it as well. He came into the world in order to save men, but to do that he had to die an ignoble death on the cross. And he willingly faced all. One of, the, one of the great turning points of his life was towards the end where the Bible said he turned his face towards Jerusalem. He knew what was there. And yet he was willing to go to die for the sins of the world. His commitment to obeying the Father was that great. So Jesus was willing to die for each one of us because of the commitment that he had. The Bible says that he was actually rich, but he became poor that we might be rich. That kind of commitment is found uh, throughout the Bible, that those that God has called. One was Abraham. You remember, Abraham was promised by God that he would have a son, 
and that he would be able to uh, be the father of a great people. But it looked like God was not going to fulfill that promise. He was getting older and older and he tried desperate measures, but that really didn't work. And, and finally, when uh, Sarah, his wife, was 90 years old, my wife says she didn't want to have any more children at this age. <laughs> when she was 90, they finally had a, a child, Isaac. And you can imagine how much Abraham loved Isaac. He'd been waiting all of his life for this boy. And Isaac began to grow up, and then one day God said, I want you to take the son that you love, your only son Isaac, and sacrifice him to me. And I, the Bible doesn't say that Abraham responded. He obeyed. But I, I, I can imagine that he must have thought a lot. Oh God, not this, anything but this. Because he loved that son more than he loved his own life. And yet, in faithfulness to God, he took his son, he built an altar, and he was ready to strike his son. And an angel called out to him and said, don't harm the boy. You've proved your faith. And there was a rustling in the bush. And there was a ram there. And the ram was given as a sacrifice. God did exactly that same thing. But He fulfilled the sacrifice when He sent His own Son to die for us. Jesus came and His commitments were so great. He was willing to give even His own life and to suffer an ignoble death on the cross. The disciples, probably all of them, with the exception of maybe John, had to give their lives. Now, I wouldn't have wanted to be one of those disciples. Because every one of them probably died for the faith that they had. But they were so committed, they were willing to give their lives if that's what it took. And then in that commitment, God may not ask you for your life, but He does ask for your commitment and other things. If there's anything standing in the way of your relationship with God, that thing has to be given up. One day there was a rich young ruler that came to Jesus. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments, you know, uh, don't murder, don't uh, commit adultery, don't uh, bear false witness, obey your father and your mother. And the young man said, I've been doing all those same things since I was a young boy. The Bible says that Jesus loved the young man. He said to him, one thing that you lack, go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. You know, my heart grieves because the Bible says that young man grieved and he turned away. He was willing to give just about anything to follow Christ, to have eternal life, but he was not willing to give his money for him. The cost was too high. Jesus didn't have anything. And so that's why I think that Jesus would be building huge churches and that they're not being used for ministry. He had no house. He, he didn't have a horse. He had to borrow a colt to go into Jerusalem for the last time. When he died on the cross, they had to borrow a tomb for him. But on the good side, he only used it for three days and gave it back, just hardly used it all. The story is told about a Russian girl. And she went from Russia to Canada where there were some relatives. And she stayed there for three months and she really enjoyed herself. She saw all kinds of sights and was able to do things that she could never have imagined in Russia. And everybody thought that after the three months that she would declare asylum and try to stay in Canada. But she didn't. She wanted to go back. And they asked her, why would you want to do that? They don't have anything there. 
she said, you're right. We have very little. We have to depend upon each other. But she said, you know, I'd rather be in a place where we depend upon and need each other and have fellowship than here with all these things. Following Christ means a radical kind of commitment, like the commitment that He gave, and He's calling upon each one of us to give as well. Secondly, there's a radical compassion. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. It's a phrase that's used throughout the New Testament. It said that Jesus had compassion upon them. Jesus had compassion. We see that when Lazarus died, and Jesus knew that He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But all the other people were crying and weeping. We have the shortest verse in the Bible and also maybe the most profound. It says that Jesus wept. He cared so deeply about them. He felt with them. And that happened throughout his life. I've been trying. We've only been here about five months. And I've been trying to learn Spanish. Man, I, I was able to learn languages when I was younger. And I can learn just as well now, but it leaks out. As soon as I tilt my head, boy, it's gone. But I have learned one little phrase, and that's because I need that with my wife. I say, uh, lo siento. And I, and I say, you know, I, I couldn't figure out why is lo siento saying I'm sorry. And my, my son, who's something of a Spanish guru, said, well, what it actually means is uh, I feel it. I said, okay, well, that makes sense. I, I've been working in a prison for the last 15 years. And one of the expressions that the inmates use, if somebody's hurting is they'll say, I feel you, man. I feel you. What they're saying is, I identify completely. I, I know what you're going through. I feel it myself. Lo siento. While Jesus was on earth, he spent his entire time doing ministry because he had that kind of compassion. He saw people that were hungry and he fed them. He saw those that were sick and he healed them again and again. He saw those that were caught in the grips of sin and he forgave them. His whole idea was to do ministry. In the Bible it talks about those that were the most needy as being the widows and the orphans. And you know, I, th- I think if uh, we had a modern equivalent of that, in Mexico it might well be the widows and orphans, but also the, the prisoners. Jesus was talking about uh, the last times of the judgment. And there are those, and uh, Jesus says to them, uh, I I was hungry and you fed me not. I was naked and you clothed me not. I was sick and I was in prison and you visited me not. One of the reasons that I went to the prison as a chaplain 15 years ago was because... I realized I'd never been to the prison to visit anybody, maybe a couple of times, but it was only cursory. I was not really there to visit them as such. And when I went into the prison, I saw saw a system that uh, was in many ways broken. There weren't many advocates for inmates, and inmates in many cases were treated like, like animals. And I found that the, uh, the lowest ranking cadet had more authority than the highest ranking inmate. And he could write up a write-up for somebody that could not really be challenged. And the guy might spend three months in lockdown for something that he did not do. 
So I later accepted a position of assistant warden and then finally deputy warden because I felt God had called me to be an inmate's advocate and I tried to treat them like people. And when we left, uh, they actually gave us a party. I don't know whether they were glad we were leaving or trying to see us off, but I had never seen that done before. And we went around the table talking and they said, several of them said, you treated us like people and not inmates. I found that it was a whole lot better not to use the two-by-four approach, but to give them something to live up to, to show compassion. But I also saw compassion from them that I've not seen in others. We got some inmate chaplains to come to our prison. Angola had a seminary extension. The New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary had an extension. They began to send these out. And I was the first one to... And I felt like I needed all the help that I could get. And so I eventually got seven, eight, nine of them to come. And they transformed our prison. The violence went down because of their influence. And you can live a Christian life if you come to church for an hour on Sunday, but you can't do it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Because everybody knows what's going on then. One of the guys that came, his name was Arthur. Arthur taught me a lot of things, but uh, he taught me compassion like I had not seen before. He decided, he volunteered to stay in the worst dorm setting. It's where all the young guys were, the troublemakers that were always getting into different problems and disobeying the rules. So they'd get locked up in a one-man or a two-man cell. And he became like a father figure to these young guys trying to keep them out and from making bad decisions. Even though he lost a whole lot of privileges by being in there. And I told him when he came, I said, you know, I'm not your boss, I'm the chaplain. He said, uh, God's called you here, find the ministry God's called you to do and do it. And he found his ministry. His ministry became the cell block. There were cell blocks for people that had dis- uh, disobeyed the rules. And he would go around from cell to cell just talking to the guys. Sometimes if, uh, because they weren't able to come to the, the services, he'd preach a sermon right there on the cell block. Mainly to one person, but everybody down the cell block could hear him. And then we started a hospice pro- program. And Arthur was one of the first ones to volunteer. These people that were dying because there's an aging prison population today. And I, I have seen him... They'd go, he'd go in and take care of these guys, and they had to do everything. Some of them couldn't feed themselves. They, they had to, he had to clean the sheets. He had to take them to the bathroom. Not a pleasant kind of job. But he, sometimes he would spend all night with one of these other inmates. And at 8 o'clock, he would show up ready for work. He showed me what the compassion of Christ was like. And I found that to be more true in Mexican churches than churches in the United States. Uh, we attended, uh, for about four months, a church in Guadalajara, the English Fellowship that I has some connection with this church. And I, I found something there that I had never seen before. They have three pastors, but none of them receive any money. All the income that comes in is used for ministry. And one of their primary ministries is they go out into the streets and they evangelize street people. If they don't have a place to stay, they they provide an apartment for up to three months. And if they're hungry, they give them food. If they uh, if they're sick, they they get all their medical papers together, help them with it, and fill it out and send that in. And they try to disciple those people. And the last time I preached a few weeks ago, uh, they actually had translates because they were getting so many Mexicans in. They needed translation for that as well. And I think this church has been one of the 
at the forefront of what Christ is talking about with compassion. Feeding 600 a week and expanding that. You're not quite up to where Jesus was with 5,000, but... Uh, <laughs> you know, you've got a ways to go, but you'll still... You're, you know, and starting, a, you know, a, a medical facility here, the idea of doing that, and a closed closet, you know, the whole approach of this church. And I'm not trying to brag on you. We're only doing, you're doing what Christ called you to do. But you're doing all of that as an act of compassion because Jesus was compassionate. And He was radical in His compassion as we are to be as well. Then finally, there was a radical constraint. Paul said the love of Christ constrains us. You know, when I think about that, I get these mental pictures, that, which is why I tell stories, because that's all I can remember. But uh, the picture that I get of this is a, a spider. You know, the spider spins this web, and the unsuspecting fly flies into it, and he's caught, and the spider goes over there, and he just starts wrapping him up. And you know what? The fly can't move, because he's completely constrained. And that's the way it's supposed to be, because of the love of Christ. And I can understand that. There have been some things that I would not do because of those that love me. My grandfather was a great man of God. and Oh, I didn't want to do anything growing up that would disappoint him. He would never be harsh with me, but I didn't want to disappoint my grandfather. And there's some things that I don't do because my wife loves me. I think. <laughs> My children love me. And there are some things that I do. But it's even greater than any of those. There are some things that I do not want to do and cannot do because the love of Christ constrains me. Jesus was like that himself. He had the love of the Father. When he went to be baptized by John the Baptist, John said to him, first of all, you know, I'm not even worthy to unlace your sandals. Not to baptize you. I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus said... No, I'm going to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So he went into the water and he baptized him. When he came out of the water, the Spirit of God descended like a dove. And a voice said, this is my beloved Son. My beloved Son. In whom I am well pleased. You know, I told my brother-in-law about reading Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And I want for us just to take a little test here at the end. And I'm not going to ask anybody to answer out loud. In fact, I probably wouldn't even say these things to you, but because it's in the Word of God, and I've taken this test for myself, failed miserably. This is what's expected of us as believers. Radical constraint. First of all, about murder, chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard that the anxious were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable for the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, then skipping down, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. In other words, your motivations are important. You commit murder by killing somebody, but if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. In verse 27, about... Adultery. It says, you've heard that said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. 
motivation. I'm not going to ask how many's done that. And then 31. And he said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All of us know half of the people in the church have been divorced, and every one of us has family members that we love dearly that have been through a divorce. And then uh, about uh, possessions, he says in verse 14, If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And then, this is hard for me, Give to him who asks for you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, I don't know about you, but I've made a lot of bad loans that I knew would not be repaid. And I don't want to make a whole lot more of those, but Jesus is saying that... uh, Radical constraints means that you don't turn them away. And then uh, the Lord's Prayer itself. And he says, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And then drop it down to verse 14. For if you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. William Barclay said about the prayer... That's the most dangerous thing in the world to pray. Forgive if we're willing to forgive. Because we're saying, God, don't forgive me if I don't forgive other people. How can you forgive people that have hurt you deeply? You can't, but Christ's constraint can cause you to do that. Christ was radical. Absolutely radical. If He were here today, He would break just as many of those bonds as He did in the New Testament age. Teaching us to forgive. Corrie Ten Boom was caught by the Nazis. She and her family were hiding Jews in their homes and they were captured and they were taken to concentration camp. She survived. Her sister Bessie did not. Her father did not. But after the war, she was going around to different places, including in Holland, where there had been many Nazis. And She gave them a message of hope, compassion, and forgiveness. And she said, regardless of what anybody had done, she said, of course, Holland is surrounded by water uh, very deep. And she said, God takes our sins and he casts them into the deepest part of the ocean. And when she finished, everybody was silent. And she was wrapping up and there was a guy that began coming forward. He had on a brown hat and a brown trench coat. And he was coming up to her and he was holding out his hand. Immediately she recognized him, uh, not in brown, but in blue. He had been one of the Nazi guards at the camp. And she and her sister had been there. They had no clothes on. They were skinny from not having enough food. And this was one of the guards that was there. And he said to her, uh, Fräulein... It was a wonderful message that you have. That he cast our sins into the deepest part of the ocean. And he said, after the war, he said, I became a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me, but would you forgive me? And he had his hand out. And uh, Even at that point, she, she couldn't force herself to, to put her hand out. She put it in her purse like she was fumbling for something. And he said, uh, 
I know those things were terrible. And I know that God has forgiven me, but will you forgive me? And he put his hand out once more. And she couldn't do it. This was the guy that was partly responsible for the death of her family members and it caused her to suffer. This was one of those and she had never confronted one of them before. But then she knew that she had to. She said, Lord, you know, I can't do this. You'll have to do it for me. I know that I must be willing to forgive him and I can stick my hand out there, but you'll have to do the rest. And so fumbling, she nervously reached out and she took his hand and she said there was an indescribable electricity that ran from her shoulder into her arm and into her hand as she was holding the hand of this man that had worked in a concentration camp. And immediately she was in tears and she was able to forgive the man and in crying she said, I forgive you brother with all my heart. What would enable her to be able to forgive someone like that? It was the love of Christ in her life. Radical Christianity. Not something just for the New Testament age. Something for each one of us today. And I think, you know, all of us daily have to examine our hearts, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Him.